0: to the not podcast the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week but not here i'm one of your hosts Emmett, better known as poor quentin my co-host jeff better known as brendan beefish is taking a couple months off the podcast for work as soon as he's back we will be resuming the regular weekly podcast with a storm of swords until then I've been recording weekly episodes with a rotating series of guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as doing audio and text posts of my own. This week I'm going to do, be doing an episode without a co-host, since Jeff is going to be coming back soon within the next few weeks and we're going to be picking up with A Storm of Swords, I wanted to do an episode just introducing A Storm of Swords from my perspective and talking about all the things I love about it, a couple things I love a little less about it, and just what the, the overall, my overall perspective on the book is, and just little, uh, little hints and teases as to some of the stuff we're going to be getting into once Jeff is back. So, our spoiler warning as usual, all published books, five novels, three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, sample chapters, Game of Thrones, a television show, spoiler warning for anything and everything. So, A Storm of Swords. It's the most popular book in the Song of Ice and Fire. I think that's fair to say. If you ask people online which is their favorite book, this always gets the most responses. If you talk about the scenes people love best in the book series... Storm has more of them than any other book that people talk about, that people talk about their first time reading, that people love to revisit and return to, especially as we've all waited for Feast and then Dance and then Winds. People are always coming back to A Storm of Swords. So let's step back from those individual scenes we all remember reading our first time and talk about A Storm of Swords as a whole. What's it all about? A Clash of Kings was all about the shadow on a wall, the projection of power as the story expanded into new factions and subplots. That's what I was talking about in every single episode of Clash of Kings as much as I could, that shadow on a wall image. Everything got really complicated in Clash of Kings. So A Storm of Swords is about everyone trying to resolve those complications. Everyone is trying to cut through the Gordian Knot and deliver a new status quo, for better or worse. That's what makes A Storm of Swords the most viscerally exciting book in the series. The Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding, Dracarys and Stannis, Stannis, Stannis! It feels like anything is possible, like every chapter is going to end in a totally different place than it began. If you think of A Song of Ice and Fire as having three acts, this is the end of the first act. If you think of A Song of Ice and Fire as having five acts, this is the end of the second act. Either way, it's an act break, and so either way, it's a big deal. As good as A Game of Thrones and The Clash of Kings were, this is definitely my favorite book so far in A Song of Ice and Fire. Everything feels it's just just being ramped up. So let's talk a little bit more about the specifics. What does A Storm of Swords introduce into the series? What are some of the new characters and, and settings and important objects that come into prominence in Storm? One of the most important new characters in the Storm of Swords is Mance Raider, and beyond Mance Raider, the the wildling camp as a whole, everyone and everything that's coming with him. This is a major force that was built up in the first two books. We saw it at the very beginning of the story. Waymar Royce and his companions were hunting for wildlings in the prologue until they stumbled upon something much worse. Ned mentioned Mance Raider shortly after that in Catalan's first chapter, saying the time may come when he has to march north and deal with this king beyond the wall. Later on, LC Mormont mentioned the wildlings in context of the darkness falling north of the wall. Things are changing, we don't know what's up, and wildlings are involved in some of it. Then we had Mormont's Great Ranging, which was in part pursuit of those uh, disappeared rangers, Waymore Royce, as I already said, and Benjen Stark. But it was also the Night's Watch trying to ascertain what it is the wildlings are up to. They were discovering empty villages and wanted to know why. Jeff and I talked about this at length in the John chapters at Clash. We started to see mission creep at Craster's Keep, where Mormont started getting distracted away from the White Walkers, away from the zombies that had attacked in book one and started thinking more about the wildlings as their enemy again. And we got to focus on what Mance Raider is up to. And this also sets up the reader to find out. Later on in Clash in those John chapters there was a shift in gear when he teamed up with Corn Halfhand and we were dealing with the wildlings on a more individual survivalist level fighting them coming to understand them as we met Egret and we were left on a cliffhanger there. John was forced to fight Corrin in order to join the wildlings as an undercover agent to spy on what the wildlings are up to, and then eventually report back to the Night's Watch. And the egret left us with those those exciting final words that Mance has left his encampment. He's marching down the Milkwater, marching down on your wall. And so the reader is eager going to a storm of swords to actually meet these characters, meet the rest of the wildlings, and learn more. As we're going to see in these John chapters, the wildlings are similar in some ways to the Kalasar, to the the Dothraki people around Dany, especially in Book 1, when that Kallassar was still huge and united and following Khal Drogo. I would argue that the wildlings as a whole, as they're represented here under Mance Raider's command, are better integrated into plot and character than the Kalasar were. It's important for Danny to test her leadership skills, to make attempts to cross cultural gaps as she will throughout her story. It's important that that starts somewhere, and it starts with the Dothraki. They remain a presence throughout her story, but as I've said before, I often feel like George kind of forgets they're there, and doesn't really develop them as individual characters. With the Wildlings, they remain central even after Mance's military defeat. They come up a ton in A Dance with Dragons, and they're always Central to John's character. John never forgets about them. They have a, a huge impact on how he thinks about the world, the ideas and challenges he takes to Lord Commander, and I know they're going to be a big part of the rest of the story. You have this kind of persistent question with the wildlings right away that this is kind of. Uh, this is an amazing phenomenon to witness. Thousands and thousands of people of different tribes being brought together all in one place, brought together, united under a single leader. It's, an, it's a movement of an entire people. It's remarkable, as John said to himself in Clash of Kings when he witnessed it in his dream vision. Like, this, is, this isn't an army. This is a whole people brought together. So the question arises, where are they going to go? If they're not going to stay here, if they're coming down north of the wall, how is Westeros going to deal with that? How will they be integrated or how won't they? The Wildlings are, in short, a storm of swords. They change the status quo in so many ways. They're this big disruption that everyone has to deal with. Now, again, from the very start of the story, we set up this dynamic between the Watch and the Wildlings. That's who Weimar Royce was chasing. But then he stumbled upon the White Walkers. So the, the war between the Watch and the Wildlings, as George frames it, is this ulti- is an ultimately a distraction that wastes resources, that wastes lives and leaves us all weaker when the real enemy shows up for all of us. The presence of the Others throws into sharp relief the folly of the divides between watch and wildlings, that we're all human, we all have heroism and villainy within us, and sure, there were cultural gaps, but those can be overcome, those can be tolerated, even celebrated, and those cultural gaps exist in large part because of the wall and because of alienation between our peoples, and yet we still have much in common. Something I think is really good, how George writes it, especially in the context of John's character, is simply recognizing the need to get past that divide doesn't make the divide disappear. Even with the apocalypse coming, people aren't just going to turn into their best selves overnight without any prompting. Leadership is still required to bring these people together. That's something John is going to struggle with heavily in A Dance with Dragons, and the dilemma is introduced to him here via the character of Mance Raider. Mance, again, is probably the most important new character introduced in the Storm of Swords and built up as an individual even beyond the Wildlings as a whole for the past couple books. Corrin talked a lot about him with John in A Clash of Kings. And Mance kind of stands in for all the various uh, divides and contradictions and problems that the Wildlings are going to face as they come together and try to move south of the Wall. He himself was a member of the Night's Watch for a long time, taken in a raid before returning to the Wildlings. So he really has a sense of both worlds and the difficulty of crossing those gaps, but he also stands in for the knowledge that it can be done. He's a trickster. He's a game player. John doesn't recognize him at first because he doesn't fit John's uh, preordained image of what a Wildland King should look like. Those are the stereotypes John has to get past. That naturally, the Wildland King would look like Stir or look like Tormund. But it's actually someone more in, who has a lot more in common with John. Someone John has actually met before, although John doesn't know that until Mance tells him. So from the very beginning, Mance is throwing John off and throwing the reader off. You never know what Mance is going to do. And because Mance is such a, a devoted singer and storyteller, George is kind of saying that's how narrative works too. Mance is like an author figure that's always going to surprise you and always come in a different disguise. Tormund is also introduced here, to Tor- Tormund Giant's Bane, a fan favorite, is introduced in these John chapters. He's kind of an earthier counterpart to Mance. Mance is all kind of philosophical and romantic in the domain of narrative. Tormund keeps us grounded in the day to day. He has these the connections to old ways and buried truths that you see in his titles like Hornblower and, and you know, uh, Father to Giants. So the, the, the kind of older world of uh, the, the gods of the First Men that the Starks keep alive in some ways, but is in some ways more alive and more real seeming up here beyond the wall. And Tormund connects us to that as Mance is kind of a shapeshifter and moves between worlds. Another new major element in this story that has been built up for a couple of books before Storm is the land of Dorne, the southernmost of the Seven Kingdoms. And in particular in Storm of Swords, we come to focus on the character of Oberyn Martell. Dorne has been built up, like Mance and the Wildlings. We talked about the Elia Martell backstories as introduced in book one. Elia is the wife of Rhaegar, and, and who died along with her children when the Targaryen regime was overthrown. So that that uh, set up from the beginning of this, this uh a hint of, of of blood and atrocity in the foundation of the Baratheon regime that undercut the righteousness of fighting the mad king and at the time it was mostly setting up the Targaryen grievance that you know the deaths of of Elia and her children were just part of the overall Targaryen downfall that Viserys and then Daenerys wanted to reverse and wanted to put themselves back in power it wasn't super connected to the Dornish themselves because we really really weren't meeting any Dornish characters they weren't heavily involved in the politics of the first couple books we were told in book two that Duran Martell was mostly holding back Renly assumed that the Dornish would join him but they didn't then Tyrion was able to to cut an alliance with them while serving his hand to the king able to make a marriage pact in fact with them uh, with Princess Marcella and then Pr- Prince a uh, son of Prince Duran Martell and so the Dornish were able to secure a Lannister alliance without committing themselves to any actual military incursions on their behalf, pledging to move their troops up to the Stormlands to keep Stannis's lords uneasy and nothing more than that. As we go into this book three, there is still this this dangling thread of Gregor Clegane, the guy who actually killed Elia Martell and raped her first and killed her son. And so that is something we know is going to have to dealt with between the Lannisters and the Martells. And Oberyn is the one who brings us to the fore. He again is one of the major new characters in Storm of Swords, even though he doesn't survive the book. Uh, He he nevertheless has a huge impact on the readers just from the sheer presentation of his introduction and how he skillfully manipulates Tyrion's trial to bring the crimes of Gregor and Tywin to the fore. So you have uh, the Dornish being integrated into the realm, we think, in Clash of Kings with Tyrion's marriage pact. You have them as part of the image of Lannister victory. One great house. Kevon calls them one great house because the, uh, the Tyrells have married into the Lannisters via Margaery, and the Martells are going to do so via Marcella. So that's the image. We're going to have all these houses in the south together. But in doing so, they're just trying to paper over the crimes that happens in Robert's Rebellion. There's are past scores to settle that are going to be woven into the present. That happens a lot in Song of Ice and Fire, and Oberyn's one of the most uh, dramatic examples. Oberyn is such an arresting character. Whenever he comes onto the page, he immediately takes over, and effortlessly so. He's charismatic in that effortless way that defines cool. And George is seemingly effortless in his writing, too. It's, it, it, you can tell later when he struggles so hard to bring Dorn to the page that Oberyn just kind of flew out of him as this perfect, devastating, artful, debonair character with a real, a real sorrow and anger and tragedy boiling just underneath. Oberyn only has a handful of scenes, but he's sketched out so clearly because his motivations are strong and his reputation is very strong as well. Of course, it all ends poorly for him, and I think that sets the stage for Dorne in the future. We see that with Ariane's plans in The Feast for Crows, and Quentin's in A Dance with Dragons, and that's kind of how George sets up Dorne's introduction into the major plot, kind of uh, disrupting the status quo in King's Landing, but uh, falling short of their goals very tragically. And I think we're, the younger generation, we're already seeing that with them, and that's going to continue in The Winds of Winter. So the Dornish court, Oberyn and Alaria Sand, who we'll talk about more in Storm, and the companions who come with him, they are Dorn's representative in King's Landing, this post Blackwater status quo, when the Lannisters seem uh, on top of things and are picking their allies and their enemies. Also new to King's Landing is the Tyrell court, who helped Tywin win the Battle of Blackwater, initially having supported Renly, then switching sides to the Lannisters to bring down Stannis after he killed Renly. And the Tyrells, of course, are one of the most powerful families in Westeros. They're rich, they're beautiful, they're from Highgarden, and they reach the land of, of wine and song and summer. They have an overwhelming PR display that they use to get people on their side. We already see that work at work in King's Landing uh, early on in the Storm of Swords, and it's the same behind closed doors. It's the same with the noble court when we meet them via Sansa Stark. The most prominent among them, of course, is the Queen of Thorns, Olenna, born Redwine, now Tyrell, Marjorie's grandmother, and again, one of the more prominent characters introduced in the Storm of Swords. Like Oberyn, she's a fan favorite because her scenes are so fun, her dialogue is so memorable and crackling, and it's just wild to watch her wield power from a very, what would seem like a disadvantaged position, but she again does it so effortlessly and with such world weariness like she's been doing it for decades. Taken as a whole, the Tyrells are an overwhelming display of female companionship. But they function ruthlessly ultimately, and you can see uh, precedence for that kind of uh, social situation in something like, you know, an Edith Wharton novel, the, you know, the, that the, the people of high society are very friendly on the surface, but then the claws come out and ultimately they, could, they, they may as well be a tribe of gangsters. Or you, you, know, you can see them as, uh, as characters in an Agatha Christie novel with that. The nice English attitude of the upper crust on the surface, but then, you know, it's the knives come out and descends into a murder mystery. That's how the Tyrells function. Ultimately, they are prepared to do whatever it takes to hold power in King's Landing, because this is what allows them to hold power back home, as Lena tells Sansa. So we're seeing not just Tyrell, but the entire power structure and logic of the reach come to the royal capital, and that's where we start seeing the royal capital as in the Storm of Swords, is a way for all these different factions and parts of the country to come together to work out problems under the surface of friendship, under the surface of unquestioned Lannister power. On the flip side, in terms of class, a group we focus on more in the Storm of Swords than previously is the Brotherhood Without Banners. This is another group that has been built up over the course of the first couple books. We know about Beric Dondarrion and his men sent out by Ned to bring justice to Gregor Clegane in book one. And in Clash, we hear a lot more about Beric and his companions running around as a guerrilla force causing trouble for the Lannister armies in the Riverlands. Now that Arya has escaped Haranel, she can directly be our eyes on the Brotherhood without banners. And they are victims of the war bound together. This is laid out very clearly during Sandor's trial, that uh, they've all lost someone or, you know, their leaders were killed or their family was killed or their neighbors were killed. And so they've had to forge new bonds, a new way of thinking about themselves and each other. And that's the Brotherhood. This kind of the, the broken remains of a country at war built into something new. It's very romantic. These are you know ragtags out of Robin Hood, people who, who live in the woods and don't have much, but give everything they have to reshape the status quo that has, has led Westeros to this point. And it's so cathartic with the Brotherhood because you feel like you've seen so many other people who aren't solving the problems who are making them worse. And now at the very bottom of the social ladder, people who aren't even known by their names, people who are just thought of as... As Will o the Wisps and and you know and ghosts and guerrilla fighters vanishing into the woods, people who aren't going to be remembered in the official songs, and yet here they are doing the job and keeping people safe. It's a noble resistance that you can see George drawing not only from Robin Hood but you know uh, modern stories of the French Resistance and other groups fighting against overwhelming odds against tyrannical powers, trying to protect each other, trying to protect the innocents. And of course, so often in the process, you have to make terrible decisions because the the logic of resisting in such an environment doesn't allow you to be her- heroes, even as your overall cause is heroic. And we see that with the Brotherhood, that they're... As as uh, Barrack gives way to Stoneheart, their ideals can't last, and they become more narrow-minded and focused on revenge. We'll talk about that more in *A Feast for Crows* and going forward. But in *A Storm of Swords*, it's like this—they're presented as like this, this last gasp of of genuine chivalry and true knights, even though, of course, none of them were born to that class. But they—they are—they are are the more true knights because it's built on action and built on the risks they're taking, much more so than the more privileged folks that we see, example, in the Tyrell court. And I think that's definitely a, a contrast that George is going for. Another new element in *A Storm of Swords* are Rob's in-laws, the Westerlings, as we meet them in Catelyn's chapters and they they are minor characters but very significant in terms of how the story plays out because of course that feeds directly into the red wedding and then we see their plot come up in Jamie's POV chapters afterwards this is this is a, a, an interesting kind of introduction to a family that unravels as we learn more about them and we see them as kind of uh, powerless and caught in between at first but then we learn more about Sabelle's plans and you realize that she's a she's a part author of the red wedding in her own regard and the Westerlings kind of all make out and even from the beginning, Grey Wind senses that they're not as powerless as they seem. Jane herself, though, was an innocent. And it's heartbreaking to watch her true love get taken apart. You see her genuine sweetness for Rob and her desire to do something to help him. And then it's devastating when it all falls apart. And this is a, this is a family that rises ruthlessly regardless of the happiness of any individual among them. And in that way, we're seeing like an early version of the Terrells, back before they gained power over a whole realm. This is kind of how these noble families rise. It's a brutal thing to witness what happens to individuals who just don't fit the model. So there are not many major new settings in A Storm of Swords. There are a bunch of new characters, but there are not all that many new settings. Mostly Storm further explores the settings that we were introduced to in the first two books. So King's Landing, Castle Black, Dragonstone, River Run, Harrenhal. We get back to the Eyrie near the end. The Twins, of course, with The Red Wedding. The major new introduction in terms of settings is not in Westeros. It's over in Dany's chapters, and that's the, the cities of Slaver's Bay. It forms kind of an, uh, a backdrop to what's going on in Westeros, like everything reduced to its archetype. Here, here are the powerful people, here is, here is the system that they are running, here are the possibilities for change, and here are the problems with those possibilities. It's a like a more kind of simplified or almost like abstracted version of what we see going on with the Brotherhood and the wars in the Riverlands. The new characters all have their specific relationship to to that system as Danny experiences it. They are, they are slaves that are elevated out of that system, they're trying to escape it, or they are feasting crows who are trying to profit from. It. and so you get this this kind of intense ethical struggle that develops there that will further further be developed in dance in which every action gets a reaction because this is a, this is kind of a, a closed loop economic and social system and as they'll say in dance if you you uh, change part of it all of the rest ripples and reacts to it and uh, that's a very complex stuff we'll get into in dance but George I think sets that up really well in storm by displaying the the kind of awfulness and the obscene nature of this power structure on display, but then showing how complicated it is to do anything about it. A couple other new settings that crop up briefly in a Storm of Swords. We get the Nightfort, which I really love in Brand's chapters. We only spent a chapter there, but it's such a distinct setting. This kind of rotting fairy tale nightmare castle where so many horrible things have happened. You just think about the stories all the time. But then mundane stuff happens like Sam showing up, but then he leads you to the real, the, the dark heart of the story is the black gate underneath the castle that leads you through the wall. And it's just one of the one of the spookiest and most visual settings in, in all of Westeros. And you can just you can hear just hear the wind rattling through the buildings. It's just it's just wonderful. We also are introduced to Queen's Crown in another brand chapter and the kind of the brand John two-hander that happens in the middle of the story. Uh, a watchtower that was uh, briefly visited by uh, Queen Alysanne Targaryen, whose backstory is, is important to this part of the country and probably will be important to its future. I mentioned uh, the, the Brotherhood. We go to uh, the Hollow Hill where they, they keep their court. That's also a memorable location, very fairy tale, very fantasy, this cave with all the, the weird roots coming down. In terms of a significant new objects in A Storm of Swords, this is where we first start talking a lot about the Horn of Winter. That comes up once in A Clash of Kings, but it's much more discussed here, so we'll be talking about that as we go through John chapters. This mysterious artifact that supposedly has the power to bring down the wall, whether it's real, whether or not Mance has it, this is some good uh, narrative gamesmanship on George's part. Also significant in Storm of Swords, in terms of objects, are the two swords that once were one, that once were Ned Stark's ice. Tywin splits it apart into two swords, Widow's Whale, a smaller sword that he gives Joffrey, and uh, the sword that ends up being named Oathkeeper. He intends it for Jaime, but Jaime rejects it and gives it instead to we see Brienne using it when she chases after Sansa in a feast for crows so Ned's sword obviously being significant as a microcosm of House Stark and his relationship to his family and how all that's been torn apart and now it's been literally torn apart so it's definitely going to be significant to keep an eye on what happens with Oathkeeper how Brienne handles it and what happens to Widow's Wail now that Joffrey is dead so those are some of the new elements at play in the Storm of Swords, new characters, new settings, new objects. So to shift now to talking about the individual storylines, individual POVs in the Storm of Swords. So let's start with Tyrion, because Storm in many ways is the second half to a Clash of Kings. Storm is like the, the back half of the story Clash started, so many POVs kind of build up to this certain point and then Storm takes it from a different point and, and kind of finishes a complete arc for that character or that setting. And I think that's that's most clear with Tyrion. Tyrion if you put Clash and Storm together, Tyrion is the protagonist of that one united book. He has the most chapters if you put Clash and Storm together. He has more chapters than anyone else in those two books. He's at the center of power throughout. He's in King's Landing where the big decisions are being made that, that trickle down to everyone else. And through his eyes we see the climactic events in both books. We see the Battle of Blackwater and then the Purple Wedding leading to his trial and the death of Tywin and Shay in A Storm of Swords. So Clash is his rise and Storm is his fall. Clash of Kings was about him finally getting a chance to to lead things and and get his name places and contribute to the family and and live the life of the people he would read about in the books. A Storm of Swords is about being put back in his place as his family and the world sees it. It's, It's about humiliation and powerlessness. Right from the start, he's stripped of his position, he's stripped of his rooms, Casterly Rock is, is dangled before him and taken away when he finally confronts his father about it. He's left to scrape after the conspiracy of Mandon Moore, the guy who tried to kill him, and Tyrion ultimately comes up short. Can't figure out for sure why that happened and can't really do anything about it anyway. He's gifted the position of Master of Coin, kind of as almost like this taunt from Littlefinger on his way out the door. And, and Tyrion can only just fume as, the, as Tywin and the Tyrells uh, wield more directly the levers of power, even though as he thinks to himself, it's only because of him that they're able to. He enabled their victory at the Battle of Blackwater by holding out for Stannis as, as long and cleverly as he did. So this, this consolation prize of Master of Coin just, it, uh, just rubs him raw. And then, of course, there's his marriage to Sansa, Which, although Sansa is enduring more than Tyrion is within that marriage, Tyrion himself is still made very unhappy by it and feels that his kind of last ounce of of privacy and dignity and intimacy has been, been taken away by this. And he ultimately feels once again like a cog in a machine that everything he is works for his father and he'll never have his own way of doing things again. Over all of this is hanging the threat of Joffrey, because Joffrey hates Tyrion quite a bit, more than ever after the events of a Clash of Kings. Seems to be still remembering that slap from Book One as well. And Tyrion realizes throughout a Storm of Swords that if he's never gonna get back into power again, this leaves Joffrey free to do whatever he wants to Tyrion, especially after Joffrey comes of age. Moreover, you've also got hanging over all this, the promise of Shae. That that's how Tyrion wants to be happy, is to be with Shay. But now he's married to Sansa. Now Tywin is back in the city. He's constantly denied. Shae, longing for her, can only meet her briefly and in secret places. And as Varys tells him, you just, you can't keep this game going forever. Is she worth it? What are you going to do about this? So you have all these kind of tensions hanging over Tyrion and nothing he can really do about any of them. And then it all kind of bursts out when you get to the climax of the book. First, the Red Wedding, when he sees exactly what his father has been up to and then the purple wedding where Joffrey dies and Tyrion is of course framed for it. He's made into a scapegoat basically for everything that's wrong with the Lannister family and that's how he feels he's been treated all along even as he's done his best for them. And that makes for a natural a link up with Oberyn as I was mentioning earlier Oberyn manipulates events here to kind of put Tywin on public trial, or Gregor at least, for the the deaths of Elia and her children. And that makes a natural parallel to how uh, Tyrion feels uh, hated and rejected and left out by his family. But of course, Oberyn ultimately loses his duel, Tyrion's condemned to death, and then it somehow gets worse when Jaime frees him only to reveal the truth about Tysha, that she was never paid to pretend to love Tyrion, that she genuinely loved him. And that's so devastating because it just rips away so much of what Tyrion has believed over the course of his adult life and so much psychological damage that has just been founded upon that as we see play out with Shay and then Tyrion kills both Tywin and Shay and as he leaves with Varys he thinks to himself I came in this city you know with and with pride his hand of the king riding with my own men and I leave like a spider in the night just crawling out like a rat and that I think perfectly captures the overall structure of both Clash and Storm through the lens of Tyrion that we saw this this rise of complications and power in a class of kings. And now in Storm, we're seeing people cut through them, cut through every single one of those levels. Staying in King's Landing, moving on to Sansa, our other POV in the city. She was kept in place throughout the course of A Clash of Kings, and most of the drama was taking place in her head. It was just this kind of inner war over the choices she had. You have Dantos and Sandor telling her different things about the world, different things they can offer, and she's forced to choose between them, not only in terms of what she's going to do, but what she's going to think and how she's going to look at the world differently. Now escape routes are beginning to open up. The active fighting has moved away from King's Landing. Tywin and the Tyrells have taken charge of the city. And so Sansa has to start judging things with more weight. There's more importance placed on every decision because now the possibility for escape is greater. And so you you see Sansa in this liminal position as she's growing up. She feels more worldly than the Tyrell cousins she meets, who are still like she was in book one, all gushing over their fairy tale prints. But she's still manipulated by the other Tyrells, the older ones who are kind of on the other side of this process and are very used to fighting these inner wars and maintaining their perfect face. The, the dream of a fairy tale ending keeps being offered to Sansa and then denied. She thinks she's going to marry Willis, and that gets taken away, and she has to marry Tyrion. And she thinks she's, Dantos is going to save her, then it turns out he was using her on Littlefinger's behalf, and Littlefinger has Dantos killed. She thinks Littlefinger's going to take her home, but then he takes her to the Vale instead. Tyrion is her husband but he's no escape either he's barely a shield against Joffrey it's just more alienation for her you see Tyrion and Sansa have these kind of dueling perspectives where they're both just kind of alienated from each other and neither of them are able to find intimacy all of that feeds into the flight with Dantos who's supposed to be her fairy tale protector like Florian out of the songs and then they reveal that Littlefinger was deliberately manipulating that imagery so he could take it away from Sansa so he could show her no that's not how the world works and anyone who uses that kind of imagery is just lying to you and you can, you can see how Sansa's journey and clashes Storm kind of leads to that that moment of disillusionment moment of breaking it makes sense that Littlefinger then reveals he's an ally of the Tyrells at least temporarily that he worked with them on the purple wedding because they're both kind of detached puppet masters in that way who have been using and abusing Sansa and then so in her final chapter her beautiful final chapter in Storm she takes power over what little she has and she makes her little snow castle of Winterfell because that's the kind of that's the only kind of home she has that's the only escape she's left from all these people who are taking her captive in different ways and then, of course, that immediately gets taken away by Sweet Robin. And then after that, of course, we get the, the big unraveling where Elisa reveals that Littlefinger had her poison, uh, John Aaron. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the political plot that has ensnared Sansa. So once again, her maturation continues as these kind of uh, various illusions fall away one by one. Elsewhere in the Crownlands, we have Davos, who is probably my favorite POV in A Storm of Swords. This is just a perfectly constructed arc. He is He's introduced with absolutely nothing. He's lying on a rock, starving to death. He lost his ship. He lost his sons. His side lost the battle. He's barely surviving out here. He's wondering why, why, he, why should he go on? Why should he try to keep living? Why should he be a POV in the story? What, what use is he in his story anymore? and then you start with that and then by the end of his arc he's the hand of the king saving innocent lives and maybe the whole world in the process and you get to watch him every step of the way it's a mixture of divine intervention and careful choices there's illusions there's risks there's the secular world and the spiritual world interfering with each other Davos returns from the dead as a religious martyr like Melisandre saying he's been sent back by the seven to do their work but he 's turned back from that mission and forced into a cave beneath Dragonstone to be reborn again there's great imagery throughout this uh, throughout these devil 's chapters in storm because Dragonstone just makes for this, this perfect setting of fire and stone and a sense of, of things waiting to burst through and be reborn it 's great there are these confrontations with class and magic that we see put together in Davos's story that he's dealing with Alistair Florent and his snobby view of the world but also Melisandre talking about the end times and Davos has to navigate that with a single perspective there are these great scenes where he's talking with Stannis and he's he's trying to find his way to an honorable victory for their side he doesn't want to surrender but nor does he want to uh, nor does he want them to sell their souls any more than they already have that's what uh, makes him stand out as a hand of the king that he always insists on humanity, on calling Edric Storm by his name and preserving his life. Ultimately, at the end of his storyline in Storm, he risks it all. Everything he's gained since leaving his rock, he risks it all to do the right thing. He risks it all for one life. And that shows that Davos has kind of understood the the themes of his own story and understood what was important to take away from his struggle. And I I just love that. It's a perfect arc. Elsewhere in Westeros, moving on to the Riverlands, we have Arya. She has escaped Harrenhal at the end of A Clash of Kings. She has now return to running through the Riverlands, which was kind of her position at the beginning of Clash. But now her support system is even less than it was then. Now she doesn't have Yoren or any other adults around. She just has herself and a couple of kids. And she witnesses the response to the war reshaping the land. She saw the the devastation unfold over the Clash. Now Now she sees what people are doing about it. She joins the Brotherhood within her first couple chapters in Storm, sees them brought together from all backgrounds, trying to resist the powers that she's been seeing doing horrible things. And she starts to feel a little hope even about going home herself, but that hope keeps running up against violent loss. Everything, Everyone in the Riverlands has lost somebody, and she's like them. There's that hope for restoration that slowly fades. She's uh, brought up against the Red Wedding and that, that brutal annihilation of everything she was hoping for. And then afterwards, she thinks she's just been trying to get to River Run forever, and she's never going to get there. She's disillusioned with it, and she was disillusioned with the Brotherhood for thinking that maybe they would never bring her home. There's no one to trust, and there's no relaxation. There's nowhere you can sit and think and just absorb the shock. You just take it and take it until it makes you numb. And so you're left with that brutal question with her and Sandor at the end when he asks her, remember where the heart is? When he wants her to give him a mercy kill, but it's, it's a question that resonates with her spiritually as well that she's lost her heart she's lost her soul it's been taken away and now she's in a, a similar position to sandor himself who kind of becomes a reflection of where she is at the end of storm there was the brotherhood giving her hope and then she's left with sandor and then not even him she leaves westeros behind valor mergulis and she accepts that elsewhere in the riverlands we get a new pov in jamie lannister this is one of george's biggest and most ambitious narrative gambits and risks in storm and it, it pays dividends it pays off beautifully Jamie gets a lot of chapters, nine chapters, more than many pre-established POVs, but it's all about George reshaping the character in our minds and giving us a real strong sense of his arc and how it intersects with Westerosi backstory and with other characters' arcs. It's this, this rebirth we see from the beginning, him emerging from the cave of River Run, absent from most of the Clash of Kings, now back in the sunlight. He shaves his head, he looks like a new person, but his rebirth is challenged throughout by violence. People want him back, and people are judging him for the violence of his past, violence that he uh, reframes for us. He's sent back into the primal past by his maiming losing his sword hand makes him question and challenge himself, his very identity, and that takes him back to the kingslaying. He accesses those old wounds beneath the surface and brings them forward to Brienne. It's incredibly cathartic when we learn why Jaime killed Eris, and we learn that there were, there were dramas and possible disasters unfolding beneath the surface of things, and we took a lot for granted, just like people do in Westeros. It's this commitment to painful truths coming to the light that we also saw with Jaime's conversation with Catelyn, and of course he's, imp- he's an imperfect vessel for that truth, because everybody is, but now we're coming to understand him a lot better and see him as a human, someone we can relate to and that's extremely powerful especially through the dynamic of his relationship with Brienne which is how George grants it emotionally and leaves it on that note when Jamie gives her oath keeper as if to say you have to go and be the true knight that I could not and I'll, I will think of you from afar in that regard as part of my spirit and she comes to think of him the same way as we see in the Feast for Crows definitely some of George's most uh, emotional and intimate writing there our other POV in the Riverlands and my other kind of favorite POV in this book along with Davos is Catalan and her PO her chapters in Clash I call them just a rainbow. They were just this range of colors and situations and, and different factions at work. In Storm, it's more kind of focused. It's this one-way drop into hell, all black and white with red at the end. It's this such this great tragic story of everything she believes in falling away. It's this breakdown of order and stability, and she makes decisions as they're all drowning to try to get them out, but they just all keep just keep drowning further decisions and fate are intertwining. As with Davos, some things feel entirely as a result of character choice and some things feel like the gods have it out for them. And I like that mixture. I think that's because that's what life is. And I think for in literature, I think it creates a powerful ambiguity where you're never sure, is something going to happen next that is a result of what this character did, or is there going to be a bolt from the blue? Both happen, both are possibilities. And there's this omnipresence in Catelyn's Storm chapters of death. Death as the end of all plans. No matter what happens, no matter what you try or don't try, it all ends the same way. And it's that uh, kind of a a grim, bleak tone that is very appropriate, and I just love. Moving on to the north, we have a few POVs here. Most prominent among them is John. John gets more POV chapters in Storm than he did in either Game or Clash. And it's to match this expansion of scope, that his, his story, his chapters are just way bigger than they were before. It's not just a coming-of-age structure. He's, he's an undercover agent, and we're building this plot to a war between these two sides. We also get what is probably George's best romantic plot in the series, John and Egret. Not only because the the scenes between them are genuinely romantic and even erotic, but because there's that thrill of danger of John being undercover and neither of them being quite honest with each other. And we know that it can't last. And that's, of course, a lot of the great tragic romances have that built in, that, that sense that it can't last. But that's kind of what's attractive about it. That first, you know, we're all going to die, but first we'll live. And uh, George, I think, sometimes just goes overboard with his romantic and sexual writing in other parts of the series. And I think he, he has just the right balance of restraint and catharsis in how he writes John and Egret. And John is developing rapidly as a character as well. It's a, it's a compression of character growth, I think you see in Storm. Dance, George takes his time, and I love that too. But in Storm, you see John force through his paces. He, he has to act. He has to negotiate who he is, what he wants. Every scenario puts him in a different situation like that. And it's very exhilarating just to match all the glorious, the sweep of some of George's best acts. Action scenes and his most tense moments. Among the big storylines in Storm, so John and Arya, Tyrion, Jamie, I think John's my favorite. There's just there's so many individual memorable scenes. Just as good, though, I think, is our other new POV, our new POV up here in the north, that being Samuel Tarley, left behind in the Fist of the First Men by John. And this is a very different kind of new POV than Jamie. We are. We are introduced slowly to Jamie as a POV, getting to know him, getting to know how he relates to the setting. Sam's POV starts off with, the worst thing ever just happened to him. He's running away from this zombie army that killed most of his friends. And it's just... just utter terror and just raw it's just this raw crucible of a new POV of this mind we have to explore even as it's reeling from something unimaginably horrible and it's such such dense difficult writing but it, the, the payoff is so strong it just it begins in this kind of like visceral terrified place and then builds on to that as Sam starts kind of coming back and starts to have getting to make his own decisions again and so you have this real catharsis at the end of the book when he's manipulating an election he thinks to himself he's not scared because of what he's been through and you, you see the through line you see that how he was able to come to the brink of despair and still get some meaning out of it and I think that's it's just uh, it's extraordinary writing our other POV in the North is Bran, who left uh, Winterfell behind at the end of Clash of Kings and is now on his journey to meet the Three-Eyed Crow. This is the most old-school fantasy stuff in the story, I think. The most directly Tolkien-esque stuff. The way George writes about nature and the structure of the, their camping and walking through it and telling stories, thinking about the past. It's all very bittersweet, driven by a lot of nature imagery. It makes sense that Bran's chapters are a descent into stories in this book that they're always talking about the stories of Queen's Crown the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree the stories of the Night Fort. Brant's becoming one of the stories one of the old school stories like Tolkien that George loved that inspired him there's a mix of political and magical elements at work that I think stand out strongly when you come back after season 8 seeing that even though you have this kind of magical, shamanic art going on with Bran. There's still political stuff under the surface, like him talking with the Little about how things used to be with the Stark and Winterfell and promising himself he'll restore it, talking about uh, Alysanne coming to the north. So you can see George working to set up Bran as the king there. Final POV in Storm of Swords is Daenerys, who is desperate to just lay her hands on something tangible after coming out of Carth, after coming out of the city where nothing is real and nothing's ever as it seems. And so that's what happens when she gets to Slaver's Bay. She she feels the need to create something herself, to leave a stamp on the world, to have her leadership mean something. She's trying to create her own power base, while at the same time save the world, and that, that is, where, as we'll see in Dance, that's where Danny runs into trouble, is that it's really hard to do those, both of those things at the same time, especially since for her Marine and Slaver's Bay is explicitly a detour. So her own glorious Storm of Swords, her rebellion in Astapor, it leaves her adrift in possibilities, as if George is saying, well, what do you do now? And we'll see a lot more of that in Dance, but in Storm there's this acceleration of this momentum and her trying to keep up, just barely keeping up. And again, it's that, that feeling of everything changing overnight that I think people really love in Storm and comes out strongly in Danny's chapters. So that's kind of an overview of each POV in Storm of Swords, the kind of the structure of their arc in this book. Talk, talk a little bit about my favorite parts of A Storm of Swords. Obviously, no surprise, the part of the Storm of Swords that everyone remembers and talks about, the most talked about part of the series, The Red Wedding. It is still that good even coming back to it, even after it should be so kind of overexposed and over-discussed, it still has the capacity to shock because it's this this careful mixture of unreal horror and very realistic logistics. And this is something George has talked about that he loves when an author shocks you, but then you go back and you see all the foreshadowing and realize that they played fair. So while The Red Wedding seems to come out of nowhere in the moment, certainly seems like that to Catalan, suddenly this, this violence erupts on the page and takes over your soul. When you go back to it on reread, I'm looking forward to it to do it with Jeff. It's inevitable in retrospect. There is all this set up for it. You have the fall of Harrenhal and Clash that allows Roose his own power base. We see him start to behave very poorly there. You have the fall of Winterfell in a Clash of Kings making the Starks look pretty weak and also removing the Stark male heirs from the game. You have Robb's marriage pact that he breaks, setting up the phrase as his new enemies. You have Roose's Weird little negotiation with Jaime, where he's not acting like an enemy of the Lannisters anymore. You have uh, Gregor Clegane taking down Stark Loyalists at Duskendale, where Roose very clearly set them into a trap. Really, on re-read, you might be wondering, like, why don't, why don't we see the Red Wedding coming? Why is it such a shock? In part, it's because George distracts you so effectively with stuff like Edmure's marriage packed to the phrase. We think that's what, you know, that's going to be the big takeaway from going to the twins, it's getting Edmure married. We hear about the death of Balin Greyjoy right before the Red Wedding. So now that that makes Rob more hopeful for his military campaign to reclaim the North from the Ironborn. So we think, ah, that's where this is going. That's that's the structure of the storyline. It's not like George is making us forget about the phrase. But he fools us as to what kind of story event this is going to be. He makes us think it's going to be an awkward scene that is necessary for Rob to regain his position. Like this is just Rob's low point and then his humiliation will be over. And that's I think that's such a key to writing a twist like this and requires so much writing and careful thought because you have to create this entire alternate storyline that doesn't exist. But you have to make the reader think that's what they're reading. And then the power of the Red Wedding is that storyline falling away and you realize it was never there and it was a veil to cover up what has been coming for you this whole time, which would be a lot less powerful if you explicitly knew it was coming the whole time. But it's that, that mixture, that, that tight rope that George walks is, it makes it so good. And of course, just the execution, obviously just the writing of the red wedding itself and the, the gut punch of it coming after this really tense awkward dinner scene and then you're you're longing for some kind of catharsis because Catalan's head is aching everyone's yelling you're longing for the situation to change and then it does in the worst way imaginable it's the ultimate storm of swords it exemplifies what the book is about a, a sudden change in the status quo where nothing will ever be the same again so that's probably my favorite part of storm of swords but the neck and neck with it my other favorite part is the Army of the Dead attack north of the Wall on the Fist of the First Men and how we see that play out. It's something that has been promised to us a long time. We saw the White Walkers in the prologue. We saw how effortlessly they dispatched Waymar Royce and then rose him up from the dead. We've been waiting for that threat to arrive in Westeros. Only the Night's Watch has been aware of it and then even that on the periphery. They didn't find any direct evidence of it north of the Wall, just rumors, just hints about what Craster was up to. And then suddenly... It They rear their head in Storm of Swords at the very beginning. At the end of that prologue, you're left with that perfect cliffhanger of those horns blasting. The Night's Watchmen realize that they are all alone north of the wall surrounded by the enemy. And it's just it just chills you to your bone. And then what's, it's just structured so interestingly, and I think really brilliantly, that then George shows you what happened. In the next in a john two john 's second chapter in the book the the wildlings get to the fist, and you see the the wreck, the ruins, the remains of that battle before you get to a Sam chapter, so you already know everything that happened, and yet that Sam chapter is still so terrifying and effective because of how George paces it out and shows you Sam sobbing and running away, and the few men that are left, and gradually shows you the memories of what exactly happened. And all the Sam having to write his messages and everyone dying in the hope of getting away and then the zombies overcoming their defenses. It's just it's just a case study in how plot is a skeleton that you then build on. And it's not the whole point, in that the best stories use plot, I think, as a delivery system for memorable moments and emotions and ideas. So the point becomes not what happened on the fist of the first men, because we already know. Basically, as soon as those horns blast, we know what's going to happen. The point is, is in how George writes it and the emotions he's able to bring out of you. And then you get that incredible uplift at the end of Sam's first chapter, when he, is the, he becomes the first to kill a white walker in thousands of years. And there's that, that that kind of that shudder and kind of relief that washes over you. That's only there because of the tension you went through. It's just incredible. And so, uh, yeah, those are kind of the twin peaks of Storm for me, is, is the Red Wedding and the Fist of the First Men, these, these two storms of sorts. In terms of more character and dialogue-oriented scenes, my favorites in The Storm of Swords are those with Stannis. Unsurprisingly, as I said in Clash, I think he's the best written character in The Song of Ice and Fire, and I think that comes out in Storm even more than in Clash. All his dialogue scenes are just so well-written, and every word expresses so much but hints at so much more, and the back and forths are are so crisp and theatrical. Even even though people are indulging in all this imagery and monologues, but it never feels bogged down, it's it's like great theater. It's like great Shakespeare, where... Despite everyone using three metaphors in a paragraph, it still somehow seems to flow. You see that with Stannis' conversation with Davos, their their ethical struggles over Claw Isle and the fate of Edric Storm. Everything feels very weighty and important. And George does this delicate balance where you can understand what, where Stannis is coming from while being horrified at the place it's leading him to and that's what Davos' perspective is as well and it's that's 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 such ins- insidious, terrific storytelling. And you see also a great conversation scene with uh, Stannis and Jon when Stannis gets to the wall and Stannis is kind of laying out his perspective on things and whether or not he wants Jon to join him and Jon's perspective on Stannis is changing throughout the whole scene and it's just like everything else falls away and you're just absorbed in the kind of the, the drama and the give and take between these two people who are aren't sure what to make of each other. And so that's that's some of my favorite dialogue work in the whole series. But uh, speaking of lore and those he chooses or doesn't, another favorite element of mine in Storm of Swords are the characters of Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Myr. These are technically not new characters because we met them in book one, but they may as well be new characters because they have gone through so much since last we met them. And this is, this is just George firing on every cylinder, these two. Beric Dondarrion as this incredible revenant that Thoros keeps bringing back from the dead again and again to lead the Brotherhood and defend the people. It's incredible imagery with Beric's sword and all the wounds all over him the way he's introduced with his big monologue coming down out of the roots of the Weirwood. There's just the wild mythology of it that this guy from the Stormlands is not like this relore zombie because Thoros came over the sea years ago, but they're also kind of connected to the old gods, it seems like, with the with the with the Weirwood roots. There's the inspiring politics of it, of course, with Baric literally giving his life over and over again to keep the people safe. But there's the, the incredible sorrow of his character, too, when it's just like in the process, he's given up everything that he was, everything he was going to be. He can't remember home. He can't remember the woman he was to marry. It's, it, he gives that that beautiful speech about it and says, I, I may well, may as well have been born from Thoros's magic out there in the battlefield. Are you my mother, Thoros? And it's just this this beautiful sense of like, here's a guy who should be the protagonist. Here's your perfect fantasy hero. But he's just horribly horribly sad and empty inside because of the cost of living such a way and it's it's you get the sense that like this is an, an another story entirely passing us in the night another story about the brotherhood and barrack. that's enough ju- juicy material to fill its own story but instead it's trapped in this one and so they just pass Arya by and they pass us by and i think there's something really haunting about that so moving briefly into the stuff i like a little less about a storm of swords the areas that i think are flawed I was just talking about something I really love in Arya's chapters, uh, the Beric and Thoros material. I'm less fond of her earlier chapters in the book before they show up. It's the same problem as her early chapters in Clash of Kings. These are wandering and travelogue chapters without much drama going on. That isn't inherently bad. I really enjoy it when Tolkien does it, I think he's really good at it. I think George is a little less effective at that because he's, he's more into the more cutthroat stuff and the more interiorized character decisions, which we also don't see a lot of in these early Arya chapters. I get why these chapters are here. I get why they are the way they are. They're needed for contrast. You want to show the, the courts of King's Landing, Dragonstone, River Run, and then Arya's chapters are there to show you how it feels when, you're, when you don't belong to any of those courts, when you're out there on the road, when you're out there in the fields, when your livelihood has been taken away and you're reduced to fighting back with your brother-man as best you can. It's The the shock of that is deliberate. It has to be there. I don't know if it has to be there to such a degree that we have all these Arya chapters. I do think they they could have been combined and been more effective. It all k- kind of just blurs together in my mind, those early Arya chapters where I don't remember distinctly what happens in each one, which is usually my giveaway for a storyline that's not my favorite. With the storylines I love, I'm like, and this chapter has this, and this chapter is this. Those early Arya chapters, I'm like, they hang out in a like a, a village in the trees at one point, and then they're at Stony Sept. I mean, what it really feels like to me is a delaying tactic, because Arya's climax of the story in the book is the Red Wedding, but you have to do so much setup work in the catalin and Jamie chapters before you can get to the Red Wedding, so Arya just has to kind of get up to stuff, and the best of that stuff is Beric and Thoros, the rest of it is just not as great. The storylines in King's Landing also, I think, run up against some structural issues here. The major stuff that's going to happen in King's Landing and Storm is some of the most incredible stuff in the series. The Purple Wedding, Tyrion's trial, Oberyn's duel with the mountain, the final revelations about Taisha, what it leads Tyrion to do, but it's all compressed towards the end of the book because none of it can happen until after the Red Wedding, and you can't do the Red Wedding until you've set it up. So King's Landing is kind of caught in a holding pattern in that regard, and that is compounded by what's happened to the POV structure. In A Game of Thrones, our main POV in King's Landing was Ned, and he was the Hand of the King, and he was making big decisions. And in Clash of Kings, Tyrion was our POV in King's Landing, our main POV, and he was the Hand of the King and making big decisions. In Feast, our main POV in King's Landing is Cersei, and she's the Queen Regent, and she's making a lot of decisions. Even in Dance, we get Kavon in his epilogue at the end, as uh, the new regent making decisions. But in Storm of Swords, the main person making decisions in King's Landing is Tywin. And he's not a POV. And he really can't be, because that would give away the Red Wedding. Our main POV here is still Tyrion, and he's been kicked out of power. So we're kind of stuck in this position on the outside where we're not seeing major decisions happening. And that's not a problem in itself. There are still individually great scenes in King's Landing early on in Storm of Swords. Sansa's meeting with Elena. Uh, Tyrion's first throwdown meeting with Tywin, Oberyn showing up, but they they feel kind of very loosely connected. There's not much momentum until we get to the purple wedding. And I think that's just a, a natural consequence of how George set up the red wedding. Talking another POV, Bran's chapters are very good in this book. There's just not enough of them. There's only four chapters. He gets the fewest of any uh, POV in this book. Quite a noticeable downgrade in terms of number of chapters from Game and from Clash. And that does continue in A Dance with Dragons where he only gets three chapters. There's just not enough to make it really feel like an arc. It really just feels like an ongoing journey Bran is having that will eventually resolve into part of an arc. And that stands out in contrast to a character like Jamie or John, who really feels like they've gone through a complete journey within the space of this one book. The question is why that is. Is is George kinda a losing brand within this expanding story as everyone else is inspiring new thoughts, new paths for this gardener author in his head? Is brand just kind of staying the same and getting smaller in, in comparison? The other possibility here, though, is that George simply can't write too many brand chapters because Bran's going to know too much soon. That's why he probably cut one brand chapter from Dance to Winds. Bran's going to start having all these revelatory visions and superpowers and whatnot. And as with Tywin and the Red Wedding, that just gives away too much to the reader. So there can't be too many brand chapters. George has to kind of slow roll his story and reduce it to the, the journey itself. George has said Brand is the most difficult POV in the story to write, and I think you can tell that just from the number of chapters in Storm and Dance. Still great stuff. Still, Brand is one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite POVs in the series, but you do notice the huge space between these chapters, and then you have to catch yourself up. So it's not its not quite... It, does, it doesn't end up being as well-paced as some of the characters with more POV chapters. Final, I think, minor flaw in A Storm of Swords is one that has been a problem throughout the series and will persist, which is that Danny has kind of a weak supporting cast. They're not they're just not super memorable. They don't get their own really distinct scenes with a couple of exceptions. Strong Belvis gets a great scene in, in Storm where he gets that duel outside Marine. That stands out to me as like This is the kind of scene missing from most Danny chapters, where an individual character gets to shine, to show off what they're good at, to show off their personality, and then you see other characters reacting. I always remember the scene when Belle has won the duel, and he comes back, and everyone's cheering. The Dothraki are cheering, and uh, Dora says, well done, Brown Band gives him a fruit, because they're all getting to show off their personalities and how they react, and that's what usually isn't happening in Danny chapters. Like, the, the Dothraki as I said earlier, aren't super individual individually distinguished from each other. The same thing kinda happens to the unsullied and to other former slaves that Danny frees. And then you get Dario who's he's kind of like the opposite problem. Like too much personality, too many things going on. He's just got too many different colors and and mantras, and he just he kinda just feels like a composite. Like he feels like like a lesser version of Oberyn in a lot of ways. Oberyn feels like the real deal and they kind of broke the mold, like a perfect version of that kind of character. And Dario just feels like an attempt at writing that kind of character, which is going to become a, a thing in George's writing as we go forward and see a character like Darkstar. George is always trying to recapture that Oberon magic and he, he doesn't quite get there. So that kind of wraps up what I am going to be interested in and talking about in A Storm of Swords across the various storylines, what I like, what I don't. But of course, I am at best half of this podcast, and I, I can't wait for the other half to come back. I can't wait to start up A Storm of Swords with Jeff. So I was just thinking about some things I know I'm going to be enjoying to hear Jeff talk about in A Storm of Swords. Jamie, I know, is Jeff's favorite POV or one of his favorite POVs, and he's not one of mine, much as I love his chapters. I've never quite linked up with him as a character in the way so many readers have and I know Jeff is one of those so I I can't wait to hear everything Jeff says about the Jamie chapters and maybe I'll finally make that connection maybe Jeff's emotional monologues about about what Jamie has done what he's been through what he's hidden maybe I'll finally sync up so even if not I can't wait to hear what Jeff has to say because I know he's going to be bringing up a lot of aspects of those Jamie chapters that will go right over my head Jeff, of course, always does some of his best work talking about military matters in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I can't wait to get to the climactic battle at the Wall in Storm, or battles, really, because there's multiple battles. There's the, the Fen conflict south of the Wall, and then Mance's outright attack on the north side, and then Stan is showing up. I can't wait to hear what Jeff has to say about the, the strategies and details about each one of those how they unfold what, what George is drawing from talking about like individual commanders I, I'm very curious to see what Jeff has to say about L.C. Mormont and how he handles himself north of the wall his plan about the wildlings attacking the wildlings would that have worked how does he handle himself when the White Walkers attack what do we think about how he handles himself at Craster's keep Jeff always brings really interesting thoughts to bear on individual commanders he's written so well about the individual command styles of Robb Stark and Stannis Baratheon and other characters so I'm very curious to see what he you about Mormont as a commander in Storm. And I'm really interested to hear what Jeff has to say about Danny's campaign in Slaver's Bay. From a military perspective, from a political perspective, what does he think of the decisions that she made? What are some better decisions? What are th- things that are out of her, out of her hands? And Jeff also also I think is the best the absolute best about writing about writing about a song of ice and fire as a writing process and about how George has shifted storytelling units around and you know storm kind of has is the least material for that because it's the book that came like quickest and easiest to George it, f- it feels like so feast and dance and winds as we've waited for it are just gold mines in terms of talking about Uh, narrative as a structure and the storytelling process and how you change things and rewrite things, move them around and the hints you can find as to how things might have gone differently. Jeff has been especially writing really, really well about the end of dance in that regard lately. So I feel like in Storm there's less of that but again, Jeff is way better at me and knows way more about those things especially in regards to A Song of Ice and Fire. So I can't wait to hear what he knows or will find out about that I've missed in terms of the writing process of Storm, how things might have gone differently. I love to hear about that kind of the ghost of the the other book behind the book we got. And Jeff always does such a great job with that. And so I think that's going to be wrapping us up for my uh, preview of A Storm of Swords. Thank you so much for listening. And I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who's been listening and, and chiming in with their support while Jeff has been away. It's been really fun doing a lot of guest episodes, doing Lord of the Rings episodes, doing stuff on my own. But I miss him a lot. I miss not only him as a person, but uh, as my co-host. And I miss the the work we do together. And I think our episodes are just better with, with the two of us. It's just... It's just um, a collaboration I miss, and I miss the the end of his voice when he's excited about something and wants to hear what I think, and I miss the same excitement in my own. And that's just why I wanted to end with just some of the stuff I'm looking forward to hearing from him, because much as I love A Storm of Swords, as much as I am looking forward to talking about it, I'm specifically excited to discuss A Storm of Swords with my friend Jeff, whom I love. But enough of that. Thanks again for listening, folks. Uh, as always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access to our regular regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.